Um, having completed um, the pursuit of prayer in, uh, in our study on what Christians pursue, I was wondering what uh, pursuit to consider next. And various things came to mind, um, because there's no end to the things that Christians ought to pursue, really. And so I was thinking of uh, the pursuit of giving a defense of our faith, or perhaps the pursuit of godly leadership, or the pursuit of watchfulness. And those are all good pursuits, and I hope to address them in time. But for today, given that we have just celebrated Easter and the resurrection of our Lord is fresh in our minds, I was hoping that we could consider the pursuit of biblical hope. Pursuing biblical hope. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to consider this subject because true hope is a beautiful thing. It is a precious thing. And false hope is the most pernicious and damnable thing. Thing is, we, we hope, uh, when we hope in something, we put our trust in it. We, we, um, we put our faith in it. We, we stake our lives on it. And there's always the risk that we will put our hope in something that will let us down. And when the trials of life come and when the struggles of life come upon us, we do not want to be hoping in that which will let us down. How do we avoid this risk? How can we be sure to hope in that which is true? And I hope that this morning as we've sung all these wonderful songs and hymns about the resurrection, about He is Lord and He is risen from the dead and uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? How is it practical? How does it translate into a reality with which we, on which we can stand? I don't know if you're going through some things at the moment. I don't know whether you have some specific struggles or trials that are consuming you and are threatening to derail you. But I do know that the storms of life lurk around the corner and come upon us eventually. And the reason why I want to speak about biblical hope is because I want you to have the confidence of being able to meet these trials with joy. With hope. Not just that the trial will, will end or perhaps that you will overcome the trial, but there's something far greater than just overcoming what is in the present. And I want that to spur you on. I want that to be your confidence and I want that to be what the, the, the rock that you stand on so that you are not washed away. So if you will, please turn your Bibles to the second chapter in Paul's letter to, the, to Titus. I hope I won't be stealing too much of my brother Alex's thunder when he comes to this text eventually in his study on the book of Titus. Maybe I'm just getting the soil ready for him to do his thing. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, and just to give you a bit of context, Paul is exhorting Titus to exhort further all sorts of people, young and old, men, women, slaves, and their masters. 
And the exhortation depends on who you are as the reader. If you are an older person, the exhortation is to be dignified and reverent. If you are a younger person, uh, the exhortation is to be sensible. If you are a slave, then the exhortation is not to steal from your master, etc., etc. And the overarching motive for all of this is so that you will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. But why is such an adorning to take place in the first place? And that brings us to our text this morning from verse 11 to verse 14. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 14. You can either follow in your Bible or you can read off the screen with me. and Give your prayerful attention as we come to God's word. And this is what God's word says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. May God bless the reading of his word. Shall we pray as we come to investigate this text? Our gracious God and loving Father, we want to thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word is without error and it is incapable of error. And Father, we come to your word on resting on this confidence that we are coming to a God who is sound in reason. We are coming to a God who has revealed himself to us sufficiently for life and godliness. And we pray, Lord, that your truths might inspire us to live for you, and Lord, might give us the hope that would help us to stand in the storms of life so that we may not be swayed, so that we may not be swallowed up, and Lord, so that we may continue to stand till the day that you return. Open our eyes, give us humility that we may hear and obey. And we ask all this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. This passage contains an exhortation on hope. It, it asks us to actively look for hope. What is this hope? And that is what I want us to investigate. What is the nature of this hope? And as we will see, it is not merely some human optimism. It's not merely the glass is half full positive thinking. And that's why I want to call it biblical hope and I want to separate it from human hope because human hope, whilst it can be quite inspiring, is human. And so whilst much can be said about this text and the subject of hope from this text, we want to answer three questions. Number one, what does the passage say about the source of this hope. So we want to consider the author of biblical hope. What does this passage say about biblical hope requiring of us? What does it require of us? And so we want to consider the attitudes of biblical hope. And lastly, what is the end? What is the objective of this hope? And so we want to consider 
the anchor of biblical hope. The author, the attitudes, and the anchor of biblical hope. And so let's look at our first point. What is the source of biblical hope? Verse 11 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The source of biblical hope, no surprise, is God himself. Biblical hope begins with God, and why is that important is, is because if we want to know that our hope is in someone who has control over everything, who is sovereign over the affairs of the universe, so that nothing takes him by surprise, even though it may knock us off our feet. Second, the source of biblical hope is not just God himself, but his grace. What does that mean? It means that biblical hope is founded on God's unmerited favor. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. As Christians, if we have any hope, it is because the love of God and the favor of God has been shown to us when we least deserved it. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's the point. To have been shown the love of God in Christ is to have hope. If you have experienced the love of God in Christ, you have hope. Why? Because God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To be a sinner is to be at loggerheads with God. To be a sinner is to be his enemy. It is, will, it is to willingly pit yourself against the all-powerful, all-everything creator of the universe. And so it is to be hopeless because you have zero chance of coming out on top in this battle. You have no hope. You are going to be exterminated and decimated and obliterated. You are going down in flames. You are a basket case. That is what it means to be a sinner. And that is what it means to be without hope. It's not merely that I don't have a job. It's not merely that uh, my finances aren't in the best position. It's not merely that my health isn't what I'd like it to be. It is that you are at cross purposes with your maker. That's what it means to be a sinner. And the word of God says that all have sinned. And therefore all are without hope. But then, the grace of God appears. How does it appear? Not in some mystical mumbo-jumbo, 
Not in some mysterious sort of knowledge. Not in some philosophical claptrap. No, the grace of God appears to us in His Son, in Christ Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. R. Kent Hughes says, This grace is not some abstract doctrine or theological construct. Grace comes as Christ does. Grace is as personal as He is. In fact, Christ is grace. The unmerited favor of God is what Jesus is about. But it is also who He is. We should thus see grace as a personal action by a personal God who saved us from our helpless, and I would add hopeless, condition out of pure love. Unquote. The grace of God has appeared to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent to die for us as sinners. But how exactly does that bring us hope? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Romans 5.10 Therein lies hope. If while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, I'm going to repeat myself a bit because I really want you to get the intensity of the hope that you have as a believer. If in our state of enmity towards God, we are reconciled to Him by the death of His Son, how much more awesome... Is that reconciliation going to be because of the resurrection of His Son? If our bitterness and hostility and acrimony towards God is not met with wrath and fury and vengeance, but with love and grace of the most profound measure at the cross, can you imagine how much more that love and grace is exponentially multiplied at the empty tomb? If by crucifying His Son, God is expressing His love for us, can you imagine what He is telling us when He resurrects His Son? Are you beginning to see the point? Paul is making the argument from the lesser to the greater. Stating it mathematically, if the love of God towards his enemies at the cross is X, then at the empty tomb that love is X raised to the nth degree. Paul's logic is simple. He's saying, if the death of the Son displays God's, displays God's love, can you imagine what the resurrection of the Son is displaying? If you thought that you had hope just because of the death of Christ on your behalf, then boy, you have no idea of the hope that you have because of the resurrection on your behalf. Turn with me to Romans 8, please. Keep your finger in, in uh, Titus, but just turn to Romans 8, 11. We really want to understand 
why the resurrection, why the empty tomb is such a big deal when it comes to hope. Romans 8.11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How is it useful to know, my question, how is it useful to know that biblical hope is authored by God who raised Christ Jesus to life after putting him to death on our behalf? How is that useful? It's useful because it gives us the assurance that we will rise bodily one day. We who believe in Christ are going to rise bodily one day. You may think I'm stupid. You may think I'm unscientific. But that is what the word of God says. You will rise from the grave. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus, if you acknowledge that his death, that it is his death on your behalf that rescues you from the righteous wrath of God, then this is the hope that you have that one day you will rise as Jesus did. Easter is then not just the celebration of Christ's resurrection, it is the, resur- it is the celebration of the hope that you have that you will be resurrected too. At the cross, God is saying, I am doing to my son what I should be doing to you. But at the empty tomb, God is saying, what I have done to my son, I will do to you too. Can you experience the momentous hope that we have as Christians? This is not just some cheap DIY, you know, duct tape, put it together at the back of the shed kind of hope. This is not something that is a human construct. This is not something that is the power of positive thinking. This is not something that imagine your goals and you can get to it if you want to. No. This is God telling you by the resurrection of His Son that that is your future, that is your destiny, that is your hope. Are you discouraged? And despairing at the moment. Perhaps it's family discord. Perhaps it's financial issues. Perhaps it's some personal trial. I don't know. But whatever be the case, you can be comforted by the fact that God has adopted you into his family. And you can be encouraged by the hope that he will raise you bodily one day. Now, someone might say, okay. Sure, I'm going to be raised. But that's in the future. How is that going to address my personal situation right now? How is that going to get me out of debt? How is that going to heal me? How is that going to give me any hope that things are going to get better? How is that going to pat me on the head and say, there, there? I want to take you to Job. Job chapter, 20, Job chapter 19. 
You remember, he's lost everything. His children, his financial estate, his health. He is a woeful and pitiful figure. He is in the depths of the depths. He has hit rock bottom like nobody else has. And what does he say? Job chapter 19 verse 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job, what what are you saying? You've lost your kids. You've lost your family. You've lost your wealth. You've lost your houses. You've lost everything that belongs to you. Your health, your, your, your near death. And what does it matter that your Redeemer lives? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he shall take his stand on earth even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job has a resurrected hope. Regardless of health, wealth and general prosperity, the ultimate question that we need to be answering as Steve pointed out on Good Friday is, How can I stand before God? It's not how much money can I earn. It's not how far I can climb the corporate ladder. It's not how much I can keep myself healthy and fit. It is in the last day, can I stand before God? Why? What what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his soul? I know my Redeemer lives. I can lose everything. And I know that He holds my soul. And I know that I will stand before Him in the flesh. Job, that's New Testament stuff. No, no, no. That is what God has planned since the beginning. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope that regardless of what happens to you, you will stand before God, your maker. Moving on to our second question, what does this passage say about the attitudes of biblical hope? What does this hope require of us in terms of behavior? We look at verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and it is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The hope that God graciously authors for us comes with a prescription for living. Why? Because the grace of God in salvation through Jesus is for a very specific purpose, as is shown in verse 14. He gave himself, why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. That is why you are saved. There is a reason why you are saved. Not because you were so good, not because you were so talented, not because you were so perfect. It is God saved you to make you perfect. Biblical hope is a godly hope and godly hope produce godly attitudes and godly living. 
Now we seem to have this idea, and there's this grace movement that is in evangelicalism, that you know, whenever you start to try and live in a godly manner, or whenever you try and preach and teach holiness and godliness, that that somehow equates to a works-based sort of salvation. No, 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 I don't need to do all that. Jesus loves me as I am. No, I don't need to, I don't need to do all this stuff because, you know, God doesn't, I just come, I just bring myself. I don't bring any works. Yes, you don't. You come as you are, but you don't stay as you are. We are not saved by good works, but please, please know that you are saved for good works. Good works is not the problem. It's the attitude, it's the motivation behind the good works. Why are you doing your good works? Are you doing it to get saved? No, stop. Because good works are not going to save you. But if you believe that God in His grace has saved you, and you want to do good, then please, please continue. Keep up the good work. Listen to um, R. Kent Hughes again. When we realize we have been rescued from the clutches of evil against which we were helpless, our resolution is strengthened never to go back there. We never want to allow the evil to take hold again. That is why the rescue of grace results in requirements. Not because the requirements themselves rescue, but because the rescued who truly recognize the danger they were in desire and strive to be forever free from its clutches. Unquote. Biblical hope produces transformation, not stagnation. It is shown to you not to let you continue as you are, but to change who you are. Because what you are is vile and corrupt and sullied and tainted and the purpose of biblical hope is not to let you continue in that state of wickedness but to renew you. You are naturally born into a state of hopelessness and that is why Peter says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Having no hope. And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Without Christ, you were far from hope. In Christ, that hope is brought near. There is transformation. Biblical hope indicates that you have been transferred from darkness to light. From sin to holiness, from slavery to freedom, from having guilt and shame to having boldness and confidence. It signifies that you have a new allegiance. It brings about a drastic transformation. And this transformation is indicated in our text through a positive and a negative. There is a negative prohibition. Don't do this. And then there is a positive exhortation. Do this. So on the negative side, we have the prohibitions. We are meant to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And on the positive side, we have the exhortation, live sensibly. 
righteously and godly in the present age. Don't just deny yourself in doing ungodly actions. Deny yourself in the thinking of ungodly thoughts. That's the prohibition. That's the negative. And as Jeff has been teaching us in his series on the Ten Commandments, whenever you see a prohibition, don't just see there's a don't. Ask yourself, what's, what am I supposed to do? I'm not supposed to do this, right, I get it, but then what am I supposed to do? We can simply state it like this. Stop thinking and doing evil. Start thinking and doing good. Colossians 3, 1-3 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And here's the thing, here's the exciting thing that I want you to understand. Biblical hope is not merely that one day you will rise in your body, that is true. But biblical hope is that you are already risen. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, I do not seek things above because one day I hope to be above. I seek things above because I'm already there. As Christians, we are called to display godly attitudes. Because we have been raised up. Biblical hope is powerfully resurrectional. And that is a word, by the way, I I checked. And even if it isn't, I'm allowed to make them up once in a while. Even when you were dead in our, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what? And raised us up. And seated us with Him. It is true that our physical resurrection is yet to take place. But it is also true that our spiritual resurrection has already taken place. Biblical hope is not just based on what God will do. It is based on what He has already done. And what has He done? He has raised you up. Cutting to the chase, Christ wasn't the only one who came out of the empty tomb. You did too. Can can you allow that to take a grip of your life? It's not just Lazarus who walked out. You walked out. Do you believe that? Yes, one day in my flesh, I will walk out of that tomb. I will be raised from the grave. But now my soul is alive. Does that excite you? If God has brought your soul out from the grave, why do you still act like a spiritual zombie? Why do you still look like the world when God has separated you from the world? 
Why do you think like an unbeliever when you have been given the mind of Christ? I don't just ask you this question. These questions are as much for me as they are for you. Someone might say, oh, but I don't feel that way, you know. I just don't feel resurrected. Well, can you just stop feeling and start obeying, please? I don't mean to be harsh, I don't mean to be blunt, but your positional reality in Christ ought to cancel out any feelings that you have to the contrary. It's not about what you feel. It is about what God has done, whether or not you feel it. What part of raised up do you not get? God has raised you up in Christ, seated you at his, at his side. As Christians, we're not just supposed to believe in the resurrection as a historic event We're supposed to live the resurrection as a personal reality. It's not merely that I look at the resurrection and I say, Wow, what a great miracle God did in Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to look at the resurrection and say, Wow, what a miracle God has done in me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Raised, seated, walk. They're all verbs. Verbs don't apply to dead people. That is the hope that you have, that you are no longer dead, you are alive. When you were dead, you had no hope because you could not stand before God. But now that you are alive, you have every hope. You can walk straight into His presence with boldness and confidence. Regardless of what happens in the here and now. You have been raised with Christ. Can I urge you to live like it? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. What does it say? In the present age. Right now. Immediately. Instantly. My mom used to... um, this is how I was brought up. I don't know if you were like brought up like this, but um, if I call you now, you come now. You can be doing whatever you want. You can be playing whatever you want. You can be wherever you want. But if I call you now, you come now. Don't come two minutes later. Don't say, I'm going to come in two seconds. No, no. You, you come now. That is obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. It's a godly principle. In the present age, the attitude of biblical hope doesn't see godliness as a virtue for the future, but for the present. It responds to the prohibitions and exhortations with immediate obedience, 
Biblical hope does not say tomorrow I will live for Christ. It says I will live for Him today. Why? Because I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I live. It's not me. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. When you have been given new life, you can hear. And when you can hear the voice of God, you, you obey. You listen. You come. You do. How should this equip us for trial and suffering? That's the question, isn't it? Be rejoicing that your soul is no longer in the grave. Can anything compare to this new reality? Can anything compare to the fact that you are alive? Yes, my financial may be in tatters. Yes, I may be in debt. Yes, you know, um, uh, my family, I have some issues. Yes, I have troubles. Yes, yes, yes. But I know my Redeemer lives. No matter how intense the suffering, no matter how painful the trial, it cannot harm your soul because it is hidden in Christ and in Christ you have everything and so we come to our, our last section what does this passage say about the anchor of biblical hope what is this hope secured to verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus what are some characteristics of this anchor of biblical hope. First, the anchor of our hope is a person, Jesus Christ. Biblical hope is personal. It is relational. It is real. When the storms of life hit, you can have hope because you are anchored to the one who calmed the storm. Second, the anchor of our hope is our great God and Savior, Biblical hope is from above. It's not something you create. It is divine. It is given to you. It is a gift. When dark days come upon you, do not forget that the one you hope in is the one who made you and the one who saved you. That's why this is a blessed hope. And blessed means it, it's spiritually prosperous. It is, it is, uh, it is opulent. It is lavish. It is rich, rich beyond your comprehension and imagination. And therefore, regardless of what happens to you in the here and now, you have this blessed hope that is unshakable, that is immovable, because you are putting your hope and trust in the one who is the heir of all things, in the one who has been given a name that is above all names, in the one who has been given authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Where is your hope anchored? In what or in whom is your hope anchored? Is it the Alpha and the Omega? The one who is the beginning and the end? 
It's a blessed hope because it tethers us to the one who is the heir. It is not blessed because we somehow have managed to attach ourselves to him. It is because he has secured us to himself when we least deserved it. And that is why we wait for his appearing. What does that mean? We wait for his appearing. It's a reference to the second coming of, of Jesus, which is going to occur in two stages. And I'm sure Steve's going to be teaching us about that in his series on Revelation and going through all the details. But for now, suffice to say that there are two stages. The appearing of Christ is two stages. One is when he raptures his church to be with him. When he collects his saints to be with him. And, and, and second is when he comes to earth to reign for a thousand years. The rapture is where Jesus' return is, is in the air and he takes his church to be with him. And then the second part is when his kingdom comes to earth for a thousand years. And biblical hope is anchored to both these events that God has ordained to take place. And lastly, this return is, 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 um, is eagerly awaited. We are looking you know, this, this word looking has the sense of eager anticipation. It, it has the sense that uh, you're looking with the deliberate intent to welcome someone. And not just to welcome them, but to honor them when they come. And to just be caught up in the preparation of, of just being hospitable and generous and just lavishing all that you have because you're so happy to see them. Are we keen for Jesus to return? You know, uh, we, we went through in, 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 in the pursuit of prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Is it just a word? Is it just something you say? Because to pray for the kingdom to come is to pray for the king, right? Are we, are we heralding the king? Are we, are we waiting? Are we pining for him to come? Octavius Winslow puts it this way, How quicker beats the pulse and warmer throbs the heart of the bride, anticipating the speedy return of her absent Lord. Is that you? Is that me? So if the anchor of our hope is the one who loved us and gave himself for us and is scheduled to return to take us to be with him, how ought we to live? Watchfully, we wait. We wait. We wait on Him. Wait on the Lord in eager anticipation. So let's try and wrap this up. What does this all mean? What are we, what are we to make of these aspects of biblical hope? How is this meant to inspire us? Allow me to suggest a few practical applications by way of summing up. When trials surround you, remind yourself that the author of your hope says that he will raise you bodily one day. Live as one whose body is going to rise. What, is that, what does that look like? Don't allow the urgency of your trial. I'm not saying that your trial is small. I'm not saying that your trial and your suffering is insignificant. I'm not saying that at all. 
But I'm saying don't allow the urgency and the immediacy of it to crowd out the joy that is guaranteed when you will be raised, when your grave will be empty. Can you look forward? What does the book of Hebrews say? Looking forward to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Why do we look to Him? For the, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Let this hope produce in you godly attitudes in the here and now. Because God has already resurrected your soul from the grave, would you live like you are resurrected? Biblical hope is the fuel for holiness and godliness. And when you practice godliness and self-denial because God has raised you up indeed, then your outlook on present suffering will change. I guarantee you it. Then, like Paul, you too will be able to say, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction, shipwreck, snake bite, stoning, imprisonment, momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians four sixteen to 18 We hope, we have hope because our focus is not on the things that are temporary but on the things that are eternal. And when you live as though Christ has raised you from the grave, what's going to happen? You will be impatient for His return. Why? We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Can you just imagine? I mean, just, just go to the Mount of Transfiguration for a second. Peter, James and John. And Christ is shown there in His dazzling. He just unveils His glory. And these disciples are just, just on the floor. And Moses and Elijah and Jesus are having this talk. And this is Christ. This is Jesus. This is the one who has saved you. And when He returns and when you see Him, you will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We wait for Christ because He is who we want to be. We don't want to be a politician. We don't want to be a great singer. We don't want to be a great sportsman. We don't want to be the richest person on earth. We don't want any of this. We want to be like Christ. Why do we want to be like Him? Why? 
Colossians says, Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. Understand this. He is the, he, he repre- Christ represents God perfectly. Who, who, was, who was made in the image of man, of God, of God? Adam. And he corrupted that image. That image is marred, is broken, is, 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 um, is gone. Not fully, but we, there's still some part of it there, but it's distorted. But now you have Christ, who is the perfect image of God. And that is why when, when we, we, we long for His return, because when we will see Him, we will be like Him, because He is like God. So when we see Him, we're going to be like God. And, and the image in which we were created is going to be whole. We're going to be like Christ, which means we are going to return to that state of perfection, which God has always intended for us. We long for Christ's return because when we see Him, we will be like Him. We will finally regain the image of God that we were meant to have. Biblical hope is about wanting what God wants for us. And Ephesians 4, I think, says, We were all called for one hope. You know, the grace of God has appeared to all men. It has brought salvation to all men. It's not that the grace of God appears to, to Indians in a certain way and Americans in a certain way and Australians in a certain way and Africans in a certain way and South Americans. No, no, no. It is sufficient for all men. And being sufficient for all men, it gives all men one hope. What is that hope? That they will be like the God who created them. Black, white, yellow, brown, whatever. When trials come, don't look inside yourself. Don't look outside yourself. Look up. Look up to Christ. May the author and attitudes in the anchor of biblical hope cause us to live resurrected lives till he returns. I'm going to call our musicians now to sing our final song. And as we sing this, can I ask you to just focus on the words... My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When darkness seems to veil His lovely face, when He seems distant, when things aren't going the way I want them to, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Shall we all rise and sing to the glory of God, because of this hope that he has given us.